is going to be a weird way to start. Uh, this isn't anything to do with the sermon. Um, you know, if you've ever been in a place where God is telling you to do something and you fight him on it, you fight him on it, and you fight him on it, and you always regret fighting him because you should have just given in. <laughs> um, I have something I need to say, and this is, I, this is weird. I, I don't even know how it's going to come out. Um, I need to give an apology to somebody in this congregation. I'm not going to specifically say who. I don't want to embarrass them. I only want to look at them. Uh, even this morning, uh, my, my flesh overcame my, the Spirit, uh, the Holy Spirit, and I spoke in a very short way to somebody in this congregation. I was frustrated, and I made that known. And I know you know who you are, and I just want to say I apologize. I ask you for your forgiveness. Um, and I, I couldn't go any further without saying it. I, I, coming to God's word, we're going to be looking at his word. We're going to be going to communion. We need to be in this together unified. And so for that person, I do say sorry. Shouldn't have been short. Shouldn't have lost my temper. Uh, and I'd love to talk to you about it more later. Uh, but I just want to get that off my heart. And uh, please forgive me. And I would ask for everybody's forgiveness. We all, we all struggle. And uh, this was a struggle of mine this morning. So I apologize for that. With that being said, I do want to move into uh, the Word of God this morning as we are able to, again, look at the life of Jesus through the book of Mark. And if there's anything that will convict, if there's anything that will teach, if there's anything that will help us to know how we should live, it's the life of Jesus Christ. He is our ultimate example, the one we can look to in every scenario and in every situation and as we go through Mark we're going to again see Jesus uh, as uh, we need to see him and as we see Jesus for who he is we need to see then how we should live in light of that fact so I want to do a little bit of a review as you guys have been with us for Mark we're in Mark chapter 4 we're going to be starting in verse 35 we'll be going up through chapter 5 verse 43 I know that's a big section of scripture, and I also know that your outline is very long. Uh, I don't, we are going to go through this fairly quickly, but what we see in this passage is so vital to our understanding of Jesus, and so vital to how we live our lives as we commit and as we submit to Jesus Christ. We need to take some time to look at these things, and we will, but in the doing so, understand that we will not, again, be able to go into great detail. And yet what we see here is, uh, really uh, a trilogy, actually there's technically four, but really a trilogy of stories, of narratives, of what we see happening in Jesus' life that tell us about him. But before we get to there in Mark chapter 4, verse 35, we've had four, almost five chapters now of Mark, and I, I attempted to kind of whittle it down to three main points that we've seen so far. So far in Mark, we've seen that Jesus is the suffering servant king who is truly God and truly man. We have seen that to be true. That as king, as Messiah, he is the suffering servant king, who is 100% God, 100% man, able to be the sacrifice for our sins and yet completely separate from sin as God himself. And we've seen that so far. Next in Mark, we've seen that Jesus has been showing his authority. We see it time and time again, authority over physical, authority over 
spiritual authority over anything and everything because he, once again, is the king over all. And that authority has led to opposition and pressure. People are coming against his authority because they know that their authority is being challenged and their authority is being questioned. And so he's facing this opposition and he's facing pressure. He's facing stress, if you will. That's how we would call it. There's crowds that are constantly coming around him, constantly asking him to give of himself. And he's constantly being asked to do that. And there is pressure that he is facing day by day. And his authority is both attracting those who are against him as well as those who are so desperate to have a piece of it. And then we've seen in the last couple of weeks that, Je- that Jesus, and specifically last week, throughout this time, has been focused on teaching on the kingdom of God. That the kingdom of God has come. It is time to repent. It is time to believe in Jesus, the promised king who would be coming. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is here. It is starting with Jesus and would continue to grow until finally all things would come together and the physical, literal kingdom of God would be set up. But even right now, we are in a in a sense, the kingdom of God as Jesus is king and came as king, and yet we still await the final kingdom. And so Jesus has been talking about that. He's been teaching on that specifically through parables. Saw that last week. And so this is where we find ourselves. We see that Jesus is the king, who's truly God, truly man. He's facing opposition and pressure, but yet even in the face of that, continues to teach that he is king and the kingdom of God has come. With all that in our rearview mirror, now we will go forward towards Mark chapter 4. So if you would join with me in Mark chapter 4, verse 35 through chapter 5, verse 43. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking up into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but, was wrenched, <clears throat> but he wrenched the trains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran down, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to, not to send them out of the country. 
Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us into the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it to the city and in the country, and the people came to see what had happened. And when they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had, been, had had the legion sitting there, clothed in his right mind, they were afraid. <clears throat> and those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and also to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. And when Jesus had crossed again into the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, seeing him. And he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd, and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And the disciples said to him, You see that the crowd is pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing that what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making such a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and told them to give her something to eat. Behold, our Savior... Behold, Jesus. We see what he does here. We see, like I said, three major situations. Really, the, the third one is broken into two parts. You could really say four, and that's what we'll look at this morning. But as an introduction in verses 35 and 36, we see that Jesus, after teaching, Jesus and his apostles set sail across the Sea of Galilee. 
If you remember where we left off, Jesus had a boat prepared for him in case the crowds overwhelmed him. And then you remember, actually, at one point, he goes to the boat, and he's teaching the people from the boat on the sea, and they're on the shore. And so that's kind of where we left off, as Jesus is teaching his parables from the boat to the people on the shore. And as that is happening, now it is time as the day comes to the end, when evening has come, it's on that day, so we're, we're continuing right from last week. Same day he was sharing the parables, same day he was teaching, now they head across the sea when it becomes evening. So they're heading across on the boat that he was teaching from. This would obviously, most likely, as we look at, would be the, some of the boats of the disciples, probably Peter even, most likely, and so some fishermen boat, and they're going across. We notice here that Jesus deliberately leaves the crowd. So at this night, he's going after teaching. He goes to set sail. He deliberately leaves the crowd. You know, he could have stayed there all night and kept teaching. Uh, he could have slept there and woke up in the morning and kept teaching. And yet Jesus had a mission. He knew where they needed to go. And so he leaves the crowd. But you'll notice here in this passage, it says some boats were with him. There's a good chance that some of the people who are listening to him teach got in their own boats and they're following along. There is no break for Jesus. There is no opportunity to get away as much as he tries. And he's trying to get it. He's in the boat. They're going across the sea. They're going from a largely Jewish population over the sea to where it'd be a largely Gentile population. And he's getting going that direction. And that's where we find ourselves in Mark Uh, as we come into Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 35 and 36, we already looked at those things. Now we are going to see that Jesus had just got done teaching about the kingdom and declaring his rule and reign. He had just got done declaring that the kingdom has come and the kingdom is in process. And he's saying that he is king and that he is reigning over all. But now we see, as he sets across the sea, we see that even those closest to him needed to not only hear him teach about his kingship, but actually see it in action. And that's what we start seeing in these three or four narratives. Jesus takes four situations to demonstrate his sovereignty that he has been teaching about since the beginning of his ministry. And so today I want to take a moment, some time, to look at four situations that Jesus shows his sovereignty, his rule over all, that he is in control. And that's what we'll do as we continue on from verse 37 and on. Now we've already read all of this. I won't go back and read it all again, but let's just look at the situation that we find in verses 37 through 41. The situation is simple. As they're going across the sea, a storm comes up and threatens to sink the boat. They're going across the sea. It was very common. Where the Sea of Galilee was, it was surrounded by deep valleys, and many times those deep valleys would make like wind tunnels. And they would come through and just whip onto, uh, onto the sea, and obviously waves would rage, and it was a very hard situation. But you will s- notice this, that normal, this is normal for storms to happen on the Sea of Galilee, but this one was obviously a notable event. You know, this is, this is something that is a great windstorm. This isn't just a normal everyday windstorm. This is something that is going to sink the boat. That is what it says. The water is already coming into the boat. It is already starting to sink. And where do we find Jesus during this time? So this is the situation. And Jesus is found sleeping in the boat. 
Now, I've heard this preached many times uh, and taught, and many times people say, well, Jesus just had faith because he knew that they were going to make it, and that's why he was able to sleep and the disciples weren't, and he was able to sleep through, through, the, through the storm. I believe that obviously that's part of it. Jesus, being sovereign, knows what's going to happen. So I don't think there's a big issue there. He probably is at peace, but I think even greater, the reason that he is sleeping at the bottom of the boat and is not awoken by a major storm, think about it. He's just been teaching and preaching and healing and casting out demons and been overwhelmed by crowds for non-stop. Not too long ago, he was praying up on a mountain all night. He is tired. He is exhausted. He's, remember, truly man, truly God. He's, he, it wasn't like he was the Energizer Bunny that never had to sleep. He was a man. And so he needed his rest and I would believe that he'd be so exhausted from everything that was happening and all the ministry and everything he was pouring out of himself as the servant, as he's serving people, it just exhausts him to the point where he's sleeping in a boat and even a storm won't wake him. And so he's sleeping. It definitely points to peace, but I believe it also points to his exhaustion. Both points to his godhood and also his manhood. Then we see the crisis in this whole, and obviously the situation is a crisis in itself, but we see that this becomes a crisis to the disciples. The disciples think that they are going to die. It says it very simply. They come down to wake up Jesus and they say, hey, we're dying, we're perishing. Now, I don't know what they did to wake up Jesus because the storm isn't going to wake them up. I don't know what they had to do. Maybe they threw water on him. Maybe they yanked him out of bed, smacked him. I don't know what they did. But they wake Jesus up and their first thing they say to Jesus, Jesus, we're going to die. That's, that's what he wakes up to, and this is where the disciples are. Now think about this. Many of these disciples are seasoned fishermen that have been through so many of these storms, most of them wouldn't even affect them. And yet these seasoned fishermen are so afraid that they're going to die, that they run down to Jesus, they wake him up, and they tell him, hey, we are dying. And how can you sleep during this time? We are dying. That's how serious the crisis is. And Jesus what we see then the crisis is, is really even Jesus' closest followers show their lack of faith. And Jesus will go on to say that here at the end of this section. And he says, why are you of little faith? Why do you still have no faith? They've been listening to his teaching, that he is king over all, that he is sovereign, that the kingdom has come. They've been listening to his teaching. They've been with him. They've watched miracles. They've watched demons be cast out. They have watched Jesus do incredible things and have incredible ministry. And yet, even in the midst of all of that, all that they've learned and all that they've seen, Jesus says, why do you still have such little faith? You see, they had learned with knowledge and they had seen what was happening, but they hadn't quite really got it yet. Now here's a couple of things. Think about this. Jesus said to the disciples when they started across the sea, hey, let us go across to the other side of the sea. Right there, they were already doubting Jesus because if they're saying they're going to die, they're already saying, well, we're not going to make it. Jesus said, hey, we're going to get to the other side. And yet they wouldn't trust even Jesus' plan. This was his plan to go across. And they didn't trust in his plan. He had taught that he was king overall, but they really didn't believe him. They had seen him do miraculous things, but have since forgotten. We already talked about that. I want to take a second just to do a sidetrack here. Well, how about us? Because we're not that much different than the, the, than the disciples. Many of us have seen God do some amazing, miraculous things in our lives. 
The very base thing is if we have come to know Jesus as our Savior, the gospel has saved us. That is a miracle of forgiveness in and of itself. And we've seen God do amazing things in our life. And here's the other truth. If you look at Scripture, God says, look, no matter how hard life gets, you're going to make it to the other side. You're going to be with me. You're going to make it. And yet, how many times do we doubt Jesus, doubt God, forget who he is, forget what he's done, and find ourselves doubting that he can have power over things in our lives? It's just a question for us to consider as we go on. And then we see the solution in this situation. Jesus speaks to the storm, and it calms immediately. Jesus looks at, gets up, looks at the storm, and as he sees the storm, he, says, he rebukes the wind and says to the sea, Peace, be still. Three words. Three English words. I didn't look at the Greek. I'm not sure how many words it might be there. But what I do understand is this idiom that is used here is very similar to how we would say, like if we were to calm somebody, to say, shh. I just have this picture of Jesus. He's looking at the winds and the seas, and he's just like, shh, and it stops. Jesus says, peace be still, shh, and it stops. You see, here's the truth of the, uh, here's the truth here that we need to know. God created the world by speaking the world into existence. We see that in the book of Genesis. He says it and it becomes. He says it and it is created. His word has created the world. And so therefore, as Jesus uses his word, he can command the same creation that was formed by his word, he can command it to obey. And that's exactly what he does. I want to go back to the book of Psalms really quickly if you want to turn with me there. The book of Psalms, verse Uh, Chapter 33, verses 6 through 8. Psalms 33, 6 through 8. Psalm 33, 6 through 8, we read this. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap, He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. What Jesus is doing here is making a very clear statement. As he has power over nature, Jesus is sovereign over nature is what we're seeing in this whole section. Jesus is sovereign over nature and we see here in Psalm 33 that there is no question Jesus is showing that he indeed is God. And then we see the disciples are in fear or in awe of what this means. That Jesus is God. We see that here in Psalms. It just talked about how the world would be in fear or in awe. That we could see God's control over nature and be in awe. And that's where the disciples find themselves. They understand that they're with someone who is not just the king that they thought would come to rule over Rome. But this was God himself that could command the winds and the waves to obey him. God, Jesus here, is showing his sovereignty over nature and showing the fact that he is God. He is king. He's been teaching it and now he's showing it. There's no way to misconstrue this. 
we also see the fact that God is the one that controls the wind and the waves in Psalm 107. I know we were just there. Hopefully some of you are still there. Psalm 107. just want to hit this really quickly as well just to make sure there is no confusion here of what Jesus is, is showing. Psalm 107. We start with verse 1 and then we'll skip over. But Psalm 107 verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. We're talking about the Lord in Psalm 107. Talking about Lord Jehovah, God Himself. And then in verses 25 through 30, how is the Lord Himself described? 25 through 30 of the same chapter. For He commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven, they went down to the depths, their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men as at their wits end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress, and he made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed, and they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love. Jesus is the Lord God. He's the sovereign God over all the world, including nature. And Jesus shows that. The disciples were left astonished at the sovereignty of Jesus over nature, astonished that he indeed is the God he is claiming to be. But Jesus would continue to blow their minds as they land on the other side of the sea. Even as they land, Jesus still has to show them more. Here we see a confrontation of Jesus and a demoniac. So as we see this situation, we see that Jesus is sovereign over Satan. The situation, a man, actually Matthew will tell us there's two but there's obviously Mark and, and Luke only tell us about the one, so this is the one that we're really meant to have attention drawn to. But a, a man comes and he's possess, possessed by demons. Actions prove this to be true. The demons, what were they doing? This is what Satan wants to do, by the way. He's isolated the man. He's all by himself in the tombs. And he's destroying the image of God that is in the man. He's cutting himself. He's screaming out. He's mutilating his body the image of god is being mutilated satan wants to mutilate god's image he wants to isolate and destroy and that is what is being is happening to this man who has been possessed by demons and we see in this situation this man approaches jesus and no one could have any power over him no one could have any power over the man many things had been tried but no one could stop him no one could control him they put chains on him they shackled him up and he breaks them through he is so strong he is unapproachable Nobody has had any hope. Yeah, there's no hope for this man to be saved from what he's going through. No hope at all for the people who are watching. He is well known. People know about this man. They know he's there. And they have tried to, to even just to contain him. And that, they couldn't even contain him. And so then we see the crisis as a part of this situation. The man falls down before Jesus and he's begging for mercy. Now notice, this isn't an act of willing worship. This is an act of necessary homage. In other words, he is not falling down before Jesus to worship him as God, although he does call him God. But it's because Jesus is God that the, demon has, the demons have no other choice but to throw their some, themselves down at his feet because he is sovereign over them. He is king even over the spiritual realm. They don't have a choice here. They need to throw themselves down. And that's what we see happen here as the man who has been possessed by demons comes before Jesus and throws, him down, throws himself down. And it's obvious that 
The demons know who Jesus is and what he can do. And that's why they start begging him, please don't send us away. Don't, don't destroy us. They're begging Jesus because they know he is sovereign over them. And in the crisis, we also find out this truth that the man is filled with many powerful demons. When Jesus asked the name of the demon, it comes out, Legion, for we are many. Legion was the largest group of Roman soldiers. It's one of the larger numbers that people could even imagine in that time. And so Jesus is, or we're told here, as Jesus asked this question, this, it's obvious, it's not necessarily that there's the exact number of a Roman legion, I think that was over like 6,000, but what it, what, it, what it means is there is a great multitude, and that's what people would know and think. A great multitude of demons is within this man. In just a minute, we'll see that when they're cast out into the pigs, 2,000 pigs. So you'd say there has to at least be 2,000 demons. So he has been completely just controlled by Satan and his demons. The solution. Well, we see in this passage that Jesus commands the demons to leave the man. He commanded them. He commanded the demons to leave the man. And he's doing that and they're begging him and saying, No, don't destroy us. Send us to the pigs. And Jesus says, gives them permission to go to the pigs. He casts them out of the man. They go into the pigs the pigs run away and kill themselves by running into the sea. What no man could do, Jesus did. Where no man could constrain the man, Jesus healed the man. Jesus is sovereign even over the most wicked spiritual forces, even Satan himself, even the demons that are from Satan. Now notice that here the bunch of pigs died as well. This was not just an attack on the demons. Also, there was an effect on the pig industry. You say, what's the big deal about that? Well, if you know what Jewish, Jews believe about pigs, they're unclean animals. There's a good chance, if you look at context and history and where they were situated, that this was a pig industry that would be selling pigs to even Jewish people. And so that, that might be part of this. I don't think that's the main point. That's just a side issue. But Jesus casts out the demons, and they're asking him to be spared, and instead they go into the pigs and they, they get cast into the sea. Jesus gives them permission and they don't even know what they're having permission to do. And they end up destroying themselves. And we see, so we see Jesus is sovereign over all of this. Now the outsiders who are watching ask Jesus to leave in fear. Man desires, the man desires to follow Jesus but is told to go back home and declare the work of Jesus instead. So you see two different responses. You see two different responses from two different people that are seeing the same exact thing. Jesus casts out all these demons. The pigs die. It's a miracle. People come and see this guy. He's clothed and he's in his right mind. What no man could do, Jesus has done. And there's two separate ways of looking at it. A bunch of them look at it and they're so fearful, they say, get out of here. They just saw the impossible done and yet they, because they lost their pigs and because they're angry and because they're more concerned about what destruction could come, they tell Jesus to go, to get out. But then you see the man who was healed of the demons trying to desperately really become one of Jesus' closest followers. But Jesus says, 
There's more good for you to do if you go back to your home and then declare to the Decapolis. The ten cities, by the way, that would have been around that area, that's the Decapolis, but it's mostly a Gentile world. And Jesus knows he can go no further because he's being sent back. And so he wants the man to go forward and, and preach the gospel, to tell the good news of what has, been, what has happened to him. He is telling him to share his testimony, and that's what the man is commanded to do. So what is your reaction to Jesus? This is the question you've got to ask. The gospel is fairly simple. Jesus lived a perfect life. He came as God and man to live here perfectly, to die on the cross, to give his life, to shed his blood, as we'll remember at communion in just a few minutes. And and he did all that to pay for your sins and for my sins. And he dies on the cross so that we can be forgiven. He rises again to show his power over sin and death. And we have that truth and we know that truth. How will you react? Will you Send him away or will you follow him? It's a question we all need to ask, really each day in some ways. And why would Jesus permit this man to go and tell a story? Up to this point, we've seen Jesus telling everybody, don't tell anybody. It's not my time yet. Like I already said, this is a Gentile uh, nation. He's sending them out to a place where Jesus won't be. They're not going to be so upset if they hear that there's a man calling himself the Messiah because they're not going to be threatened by it like the Jews would be. And so that's why he sends, him, he sends him on his way, really, to be a missionary. In some ways, he might be the first missionary. Jesus sends him out to go back home and, and share the good news. So, so far, we've seen that Jesus has demonstrated his sovereignty over nature, which is the physical realm, and now Satan, the spiritual realm. Many were amazed and many were still afraid. So some were amazed, some were just fearful. And Jesus continues to show his sovereignty even over the impossible as he heals an incurable disease as we go to the next section. This next situ- situation we find, if you remember when we read it, that we see, uh, that now we're going to see that Jesus is sovereign over health. Jesus is sovereign over health as we see the woman with bleeding. The situation we find ourselves in is simple. Jesus is met by Jairus on his way, and now Jairus says, I need you to come heal my daughter. She's at the brink of death. And so Jesus says, all right, let's go. So Jesus is back across the sea, by the way. They're back over uh, in Galilee. They're back over there. And, and now uh, they're traveling. Now Jairus comes, and he's going with Jairus to his house to heal his daughter. In the process of this happening, as they travel, and he, Jesus is surrounded now by crowds trying to get to Jesus to be healed. Crowds are still there. They're still trying to get to Jesus. They know that he can heal. He's still being overwhelmed by crowds. We see that to be true. And we find that there's someone in the crowd that has a crisis as they're traveling. And the crisis is the woman that has had a bleeding condition for years. Just years and years of suffering. She's had this bleeding condition. We don't know exactly what it is. But obviously whatever it is is something very severe. And what we're told in this passage is that doctors had tried everything to heal her. They've done everything they could possibly think of. I I read as I studied, there was like 12 ways to heal bleeding disorders. Like some of them were like crazy, like you got to go like sit on a corner for a day and then like only stand on one leg, like stuff like that. I mean, she has tried everything, tried everything and nothing has worked. There is no hope. It is impossible. But she knows that there's only one place to go. So she's in the crowd. She reaches out to touch his clothes in faith. The woman knew that Jesus was her only hope. She was desperate for Jesus. She was desperate for his his healing. And she knew that he was her only hope. And so she comes to him. She reaches out. She grabs his clothing. And then we see the solution. 
the woman is immediately healed. The woman is immediately healed. She knew it, and so did Jesus. As soon as this happens, she feels that she's healed. She knows that she's healed. Jesus knows that power has left him. Obviously, Jesus, being the sovereign one, knows what's going on. He knows that she touched him. And now there, there is a healing that has happened. But Jesus didn't just keep going. He stops everybody and he calls out to her to point her out. Who was the one who touched me? And the disciples were like, you're crazy, man. How are you? Everybody's touching you. Like, how are you? what do you mean, Who's, who touched you? Who touched your garments? What do you mean? Jesus knew exactly who had touched his garments. But he wanted to call her out as an example of faith. And so the woman comes forward and she says, it was me. And he says, go forth, you are healed because of your faith. Not because... He had special clothes, but it's because she believed and was so desperate for him that when she came to him, she was healed. And so Jesus calls her out to point out her faith. One thing I want us to think about, and we'll think about a little bit later, but are you desperate for Jesus in the way that this woman was? Whatever your situation, are you desperate for Jesus? Or is he just one other option? Something to consider. Jesus healed what no man could heal. He again shows his sovereignty in the physical world over health. As the woman is healed, this also set up now his greatest act of sovereignty that had yet to be seen. In our last situation, we will see that Jesus has ultimate authority even over death itself. And so as he's traveling, and this is kind of a parenthesis, as this woman is healed, now we come to the girl, Jairus' daughter. Jesus is sovereign over death. The situation... Jairus has come to Jesus. We already talked about that. And he asks asks Jesus to heal his daughter. And he says, she is at the point of death. She is dying. She is going to die, Jesus. Would you come and heal her? He is also desperate for Jesus to help. He knows he's his only hope. And he's coming to Jesus and desperately asking him to heal his daughter. But after this thing happens with the woman and she is healed, and remember things stopped, things slowed down, we see that there is news that comes. And the news that comes to Jairus and to the whole group is that the girl has died. News comes as they travel that the girl has died. The delay for the bleeding woman seems to have taken away hope for the girl. If I was Jairus and you think about putting yourself in that position, Jesus, if you wouldn't have stopped, it didn't matter. She was already healed and now my daughter is dead. That's not how we see Jairus respond. But that could be a very natural way. It seems to take an all hope away. And also notice that Jesus could have healed this girl from afar. We see him doing that other places. He could have said, go home, she's healed. Jesus could have done that. But there was a greater thing that he was doing as they were traveling towards Jairus' house. So the crisis really, the crisis for Jairus is this. Jairus is told to give up. He says, your daughter's dead. Just leave the master alone. Leave him alone, come home. It's all over with. There's a crisis here for him. But Jesus tells him not to stop believing. What he says to Jairus here at this point is is so great. Because what he says, uh, he, he says this. He says, do not fear, only believe. Obviously, Jairus would start being afraid. Like, oh, my daughter is dead. But Jesus says here, and in the Greek, it's keep on believing. You've shown faith. Don't stop now. If I can heal your daughter, still have faith, it still can work out. And so, obviously, Jairus continues to lead him to his house, so believes Jesus here and has faith in his desperateness. 
when they get there, mourning has already started as all hope is lost. Professional mourners had already shown up. This was common in Hebrew culture. People who were paid to come and cry. Weird, but that's what people did. And it was a way to honor the dead. And so people had already arrived. They're starting to mourn. They're starting to cry. They're starting to just, they're they're just besides themselves. This young girl had died. A 12-year-old girl had died. And so this is the crisis. But Jesus, even coming through, confronts this hopelessness and says, no, it's not hopeless. There is hope. She's just sleeping. He didn't mean that she was literally just sleeping. What he means is it's as if she is just sleeping because she's about to be awoken. And what do the people do? They laugh at him. They should have known Jesus enough to see what he's done, but he hasn't healed somebody, brought somebody from the dead yet. And so apparently he can do some things, but he can't do everything. They're doubting his sovereignty. They're basically saying, yeah, you can be king over some things, but not everything. Might sound familiar for some of us because I think we can do the same thing. So then we see the solution. Jesus, with only a few others, went in and raised the girl back to life. He takes just a few of his disciples, he takes Jerison and heals the girl. Brings her back to life and she immediately is healed. She rises up, she starts walking. She's 12 years old. She immediately starts walking. Jesus is then going to say, at the end, give her something to eat. She's so healed that she's ready to get back to normal life, to walk and to eat. Jesus completely raised her to life. It wasn't just that he made her a little bit better. He made her completely back to life. And that is what Jesus did. He showed his sovereignty over even death. But he still wasn't looking to make a big scene. His time had not yet come. Only a few saw this. And those who did see it were in awe of his power. And Jesus again told them not to tell. The time had not yet come for his complete revelation. It had not come yet to him be, for him to be revealed as who he truly was to all people. He had started that process, but it wasn't time. And I want to say, think about it. If you know in the future, Jesus raises Lazarus back to life. Lazarus, if you remember that story, he's dead for four days. He, he comes back, he raises Lazarus, and everybody's amazed. Remember what happened when he raises Lazarus and everybody saw it happen? All the authorities want to kill him right then. Because that's the, that's the straw that broke the camel's back for the authorities. And so I believe if Jesus would have healed in a public way, that would have expediated the whole process. But Jesus wasn't done with his ministry on the earth yet. It wasn't his time yet. And so he tells them not to tell. How hard could that have been? I mean, obviously the people outside would have thought, oh, there's something weird. This girl's walking out here. But Jesus says, don't tell. It's not his time yet. But yet we still see, and it's recorded for us, as Peter would be an eyewitness to this, as Mark is writing from Peter's perspective, that Jesus is sovereign over death. Jesus demonstrated the kingdom of God by showing his sovereignty over nature, Satan, health, and even death. He is sovereign over all. This is truth we cannot ignore. But before we get depressed by that, because here's the thing, a lot of times we talk about God's sovereignty versus what we choose, and there is... I don't know. God has it perfectly figured out, right? He is chosen. He is sovereign 100%. And yet he wants to use our will to do things. I don't know how it all works, but what I know is he's sovereign overall. And when we start talking about this, a lot of us get really uneasy. Like, wow, are we just a puppet? Like, if God is sovereign and everything, he can do anything. And Jesus is sovereign over everything. Then man, why are we even here? What's the point? Like, this is really depressing. Like, I have no control over my life. Oh man, that's terrible. Can I just say, that's crazy. 
we should be thankful that God is sovereign over everything because then it's not up to us. The God who created the world who is perfect and good in everything, he has said to us, I'm in control, you aren't. And instead of being upset about that or being afraid of that or thinking somehow that we're losing something, think about how much we're gaining. Jesus is demonstrating here in Mark and throughout the scripture we will see that God is sovereign over all things. And what does that mean for us? Well, let's talk about that for a few minutes before we go to communion. First of all, I want to ask this question as we've looked at this whole thing. Are you desperate for Jesus? Are you desperate for his control? Are you desperate for his sovereignty? Are you desperate to come to Jesus? Or is he just another piece of your life? Is he just something, okay, on Sundays I can honor Jesus and then I'll do my own thing. Maybe I'll even come to home group, but when, you know, I'm going to kind of do my own thing. But are we desperate for Jesus? Are we desperate for him? Jairus was desperate. The woman was desperate. The disciples were desperate. They thought they were dying. Everyone that we've seen today, the faith that God blesses, the faith that Jesus heals through, where he shows his sovereignty, the faith continues to grow and to grow and to grow, but it's because people are desperate for Jesus. They know he's their only hope. Do you know that Jesus is your only hope? Or are you depending on yourself, someone else, your good works, It's a whole list. Jesus, as we said earlier, died and rose again so that you could be forgiven of your sin and so that he could rule over your life. And that is a good thing. And if you have not come to the place where you have submitted to the sovereignty of Jesus Christ, you need to come to him, you need to repent of your sins and turn from your way of living and live for him and say, Jesus, I want you to be Lord of my life. I believe in you. I love you. And please take my life. And change me. That is what salvation is all about. And so if you have not done that, you need to do that today. Don't wait any longer. God is sovereign. Jesus is king and that's not going to change. Come to him now. Submit to him. So are you desperate for Jesus? And do you truly trust that Jesus is sovereign over all? I don't know what everybody else is going through this morning. I know some of your stories. I know some of you are going through really, really dark, deep, hard times. I know some of you, it's physical. Some of you might even feel like Satan is attacking and there's spiritual warfare and you don't know how to get through it. Some of you may be even to the point of fearing death. I don't know where you're at. But what I can tell you this morning is that Jesus is in control. He's a good God. He loves you. He's going to make everything turn out for good for those who love him and follow his will. That's what we're told in Romans. Do you trust that Jesus is sovereign? Because here's the thing. Whether it's health, whether it's death, whether it's nature, whether it's spiritual warfare, whatever it is, we can't overcome it on our own. We need to run to Jesus who is sovereign over all and let him have control quit trying to fight the king but submit to the king and as i said this is not only just a i'm not just imploring you to see jesus as sovereign i'm actually encouraging you that jesus is sovereign trust in him he is in control trust in him he is in control 
And that's what I hope we can see as we look at Mark chapter 4 and chapter 5. With all that being said, it is time now to move on to our communion.